This podcast is brought to you by Intel V Pro. Hi there. This is Lillian Cunningham, host of Presidential. It's hard to believe, but it's been four years since I originally made this podcast. Since then, I've created two other series that I know many of you have listened to, Constitutional and Moonrise. But the whole time, I've continued to think about presidential history. I recently moderated a panel at WBUR City Space in Boston that I think a lot of you who've listened to the presidential series would find interesting. It was called Unprecedented Presidents, and it was a discussion about how the Trump presidency fits into historical context. On stage, I spoke with three great historians who looked back over the arc of presidential history to reflect on what's really new and unprecedented here. The experts were Alexis Coe, the author of the George Washington biography, You Never Forget Your First, Drew Gilpin Faust, the former president of Harvard University and a prominent Civil War historian, and then Julian Zelizer, a professor of political history at Princeton University and a biographer of 20th century presidents like Lyndon Johnson, Jimmy Carter, and Ronald Reagan. Many thanks to WBUR, Boston's NPR news station, for letting us share this recording with you presidential listeners. Here's the discussion that I had with Alexis, Drew, and Julian. It was recorded in February 2020, and it's been lightly edited just to bring the length down. Here we go. Live from WBUR City Space in Boston, here is Unprecedented Presidents. Hi, it's great to be here, and it's such an honor to be with these three really distinguished presidential historians. The topic tonight that we're really going to focus on is this sort of examination of what's unprecedented and precedented about this moment that we're living through right now. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, and we certainly hear this um, as journalists at the Washington Post, a lot of people have this sense that we're living through a uniquely wild and uncharted time. Um, you know, a president who tweets aggressive messages at political opponents and a Speaker of the House who tears up the president's State of the Union address. And so we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, like, are these new things? How new is this? But I wanted to start, actually, by just asking each of you to say something, um, something about this moment that people might be tempted to look at and think is unique to a Trump presidency, but that we actually have seen before in history, and maybe we need that reminder. Like, you want to start, Alexis? Sure. Um, I think the probably the most obvious thing is partisanship, rampant partisanship, and um, publications that have such an obvious um, political bias. And that has been around from the very beginning. It was, in fact, George Washington's worst nightmare. He didn't um, claim a political party until after he left office. And even then it wasn't really, he wasn't really vocal about it. Um, but things were quite bad. Uh, and Jefferson, in fact, said that he'd never seen anyone take anything, you know, criticism as personally as Washington did. So I think that is definitely something that's not new. And for me, um, 
I find that comforting. I find it comforting to know that things have always been um, this way. That being said, no guarantees for the future. (laughs) So Lillian, you gave us a heads up that you were going to want us to think about this question before we started discussing what is um, unprecedented and how to how to, to situate that in a historical context. And so as I thought about it, I found myself racking my brain and I thought, well, let's see. There's always been the Easter egg roll, at least for a long time. <laughs> and we're still pardoning turkeys. So there's certain continuities here. But then when I thought a little more seriously, I thought to myself, there are a lot of things that structural things that Trump has not changed. I mean, we still have a cabinet that has people in it. We still have a vice president. He's still having elections. And that sounds absurd in some ways to say because we take those structures so for granted. But I think it's also important to look at what he's been able to do within, within those structures because you still have a cabinet there, but it's operating in a very different way. And so a lot of what's the same is simply surrounding things that he has managed to use in very different ways. So I think the precedented and the unprecedented collide in, in lots of um, circumstances and in important and significant measure. And we'll definitely talk about that more. So, I mean, Julie? I'd say my, the one thought before the answer is that just because something is precedented doesn't mean it's not bad or dangerous. Uh, and so often when I get that question, I try to think about, is it in that second category? We've seen something before, but it can be incredibly destabilizing or have had bad consequences before and have them again. But the a biggest story, one of the bigger stories is, is kind of an expansive vision of presidential power, which was at the heart of, of the impeachment debate and Alan Dershowitz's famous defense. That's not new. Uh, this is something... Uh, it's been building for over a century, uh, at least, at least since Lincoln, in, in terms of a more expansive vision of presidential power. But certainly since the 70s, uh, we've seen after Watergate an effort to rebuild the executive branch, to strengthen the president in, respond to, in response to reforms from the 1970s. And, and we've seen with Reagan, uh, with Clinton, Bush, we've seen in both parties presidents flexing this muscles uh, muscle in ways that don't totally fit with the 19th century, but are not totally new. Great. Well, why don't we um, why don't we back up to the beginning of the presidency for a moment, and I'll um, ask you this, Alexis, since you just wrote this great book about Washington. You know, to what extent did the founders and Washington himself have a you know a fairly clear vision of what they thought that role should look like? Obviously, there's not a whole lot in the Constitution that really details what a president should be, how one should act, even, you know, what an abuse of power really is. So, um, you know, to what extent was that all purposefully left flexible to change with the times? So much of the presidency was envisioned with Washington in mind. And so they certainly tried to figure out a decent amount in the Constitution with, I mean, and then Washington literally annotated it and wrote president, president, president. Um, but then when he got into office, he he created certain um, precedents and also um, certain institutions like the cabinet. You know, he didn't feel as if he was getting the 
advice that he needed from Congress. Um, he, he went once and it was a total disaster. He very, he, he rarely lost his temper in public and he just completely lost it at Congress. He yelled at them and said, you know, why am I even here? And, um, then he set up the cabinet and, you know, that didn't go so well either. That was Jefferson and Hamilton and the birth of, of partisanship. Um, but he also, while Washington understood the fragility of these institutions, which I think is really important, and I think that was suggested by by um, by the other people in the panel, but I think what what's really important to remember is that um, he also was the first one to sort of sidestep things too, you know, to figure out what worked for him. So of course we have uh, the Whiskey Rebellion, the only time in uh, our history in which a president has, um, you know corralled a militia to turn turn you know guns on it on our own people um and in fact he he rode out he almost got to the field with them to confront a, a bunch of rebels who weren't actually there and so i think that is is interesting too that that washington all the founders they weren't all knowing they weren't perfect they made plenty of mistakes both in um what they were sort of considering the presidency to be and and the limits and the extensions of it and how they were in the roles itself so I know um, one thing that Doris Kearns Goodwin says a lot and a number of presidential historians say a lot is that the great presidents were students of history and that you can really see throughout the American presidency a number of those figures sort of turning back to study the precedents that had been set. Um, I guess this is for Julian, but you know anyone can feel free to jump in and answer it. I'm just curious how you look at this moment today when you think about precedent is sort of the risk that we have right now that we're maybe seeing a president who just doesn't really care about the precedents that have been set before. Very hard to say precedents and precedents. I mean, look, it matters. It matters a lot. I'll start by saying it's not a guarantee of good leadership. So Lyndon Johnson, who I wrote about, he, he, he had a good feel of history. He had a good feel of, of previous presidents. He thought about it all the time. He's kind of consumed with how did he fit compared to FDR. He knew that Harry Truman couldn't get health care through and why he couldn't get it through. And that was the first thing he wanted to prove other, along with civil rights that he could do. But he also ended up in Vietnam. And, and, and you can argue his kind of obsession with the fate of Democrats in 1952 when Eisenhower wins the presidency, when Republicans win Congress, that is on his mind all the time when he refuses to withdraw from the war. So I would start by saying it's not a guarantee of good leadership to be very historical. Uh, you, you can make big mistakes. But there are dangers of not having any uh, kind of foundation in the past. What we're learning with President Trump is a lot of the restraint on presidents uh, and a lot of the ways in which they move, it's, it's from themselves rather than through other institutions. That if a president really wants to do something, they can do it. Uh, they can do a lot more than we think. And uh, often what checks them is a sense of the dangers or problems other presidents have faced. It's an understanding of the tradition that they're part of. And I think part of what you see in the current White House is even in contrast to a Richard Nixon, someone who doesn't have that. That's not a foundation. And so he's willing to go into places that I think other presidents are more circumspect, not just because they're good people, but because they have that weight 
of the institution and the office that they inhabit. And I would see the relationship of a president to history and an understanding of it's always been his, his place in history, as reinforced by an understanding and relationship to the Constitution. Because the Constitution is, in so many ways, the embodiment of our historical commitments and has been the touch point by which predecessors will have related to the past. And so I think that when a president thinks about precedent, a lot of that is, what am I going to see myself doing in relationship to the Constitution? And so that's how it, it expresses itself. Well, you've spent a lot of time studying Lincoln, so maybe this would be great to take a moment and talk a little bit about, um, you know, by the time Lincoln gets to the presidency, how much does it sort of look like it did when George Washington held it, and what ways did he sort of reinvent or push the boundaries of executive power? Well, Lincoln pushed the boundaries of executive power very forcefully, and he had a circumstance in which he felt he was compelled to do that. Of course, the war was right in front of him, as or secession was in front of him, with a good chance of a war following fast along. Um, and he used the words in the Constitution, actually, to go back to what I was just saying, the notion that the oath of office says, preserve, protect, defend. And he thought that was his fundamental mission. And if there were other difficulties that his necessary actions might create in relationship to the Constitution if he was supporting the notion of preserve, protect, defend, then it was okay. So when um, things erupt after Fort Sumter, Lincoln sets up a blockade around the South. That is the equivalent of an act of war. The president is not allowed to declare war. Congress is supposed to declare war. So then uh, in May, he calls up troops, and it is supposed to be the Congress that calls up troops. Congress is out of session and is not supposed to appear until July. So by the time Congress does appear in July, Lincoln has done all kinds of things that have really pressed the boundaries of the Constitution. And he goes to Congress and says, will you give me um, retroactive support? And they do in that instance. But there are a number of other ways in which, by suspending habeas corpus, um, by prosecuting um, a disloyal citizen who is a copperhead and fomenting disunion in Ohio. And, and, and so sometimes he managed to get Congress to go ahead and ratify something he had already done. Sometimes he caused tremendous pushback. And then, of course, emancipation. He struggled with, could this be a presidential power? And ultimately, as I think you probably almost all know, he justified it under the guise of military necessity and didn't go further than he thought he could as a military matter. So he tried to um, do what he needed to do in face of an uprising in the South, but a lot of it required enormous expansion of presidential powers. Well, maybe just to sort of stick in this era for a moment, after Lincoln, we of course get Andrew Johnson, who's the first president to be impeached. Could you talk a little bit about what the relationship between Johnson and the Congress looked like and the echoes that, you know, you see today watching Trump's impeachment unfold? Uh, and then also, you know, ultimately, what came of that first big push and pull between the Congress and the presidency? Well, the Congress 
worried a great deal about the intransigence of the South in the months after Appomattox and the formal end to the war. The Republican radicals in Congress and even moderates who had been fervent supporters of the Union during the war began to resent this conciliatory tone that Andrew Johnson was taking towards the South and to feel that he had betrayed the purposes of the war and indeed the will of Congress and the powers of Congress. And so radical reconstruction was imposed and Johnson just tried to resist it in so many ways and became himself defiant and at one point went on this speaking tour all over the United States and was entirely vituperative in his um, commentary about the, the members of Congress in the North. And it was, it was an ugly scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we can see uh, certain germs of some of the conflicts of today in those, in those moments. When people think about presidents who've ignored the law or sort of pushed the boundaries of the law, they tend to think about Andrew Johnson or Richard Nixon, you know, a president who faced impeachment. But as you said, you know, Lincoln pushed the boundaries of the law in many ways, and certainly presidents like Franklin Roosevelt. Maybe this is a question for you, Julian, since you've spent a lot of time with 20th century uh, presidents, but how do you think through whether what we're seeing is a thing that presidents always do? They're always sort of pushing the boundaries versus, you know, it's something where we really need to be worried that there's a constitutional threat here. All presidents naturally push the boundaries of their power in an effort to either pursue public policy objectives or to preserve their political coalition. Bill Clinton, frustrated with the Republican Congress in the late 1990s, started to aggressively use executive power uh, to make some progress on environmental uh, issues. And uh, Barack Obama did the same with immigration. He did it with uh, carbon emissions. Uh, certainly FDR was incredibly uh, expansive in using federal policy to protect the democratic coalition and the idea was in the end that's going to be better for the country so it's a story we see again and again but then there are those moments when someone crosses the line and I can't tell you what the line is and that's the problem the constitution doesn't tell you really what the line is uh, but certainly one category of activity which is at the heart of what we just went through, is when a president uh, uses public policy, whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy, explicitly uh, for his own political self-interest. Not simply thinking of the politics of an issue, which they all do, um, but really actually leveraging specific policies to protect themselves. There's other cases where presidents have used the power of the executive branch to do bad things, to citizens, to legitimate citizen organizations. We saw that in the 60s with anti-war movement uh, um, um, activists being infiltrated uh, by law enforcement or President Nixon specifically targeting them or the wiretapping of Martin Luther King. Those are the kinds of, I think, crossing the boundary activities that we're looking for. But ultimately, if Congress is not willing to really examine that or act on that, it, it's hard to hard to retrench that. And I think um, that is, I, the Constitution by default, it has impeachment in it. And I 
strongly believe impeachment is a legitimate process, as legitimate as election, but it's clear to me that the Constitution also makes it incredibly hard to go through that process. That's why you have a supermajority requirement in, in the Senate. And it's in those definitional questions you're asking that the process can often get tripped up. So why don't we talk a little bit about um, presidential leadership traits and how it seems like what has made for either a successful president or just someone who can attain the presidency, um, whether they end up successful or not in it, how that's changed over time. Um, you know, when I did the presidential podcast, one of the things that struck me most was the fact that Thomas Jefferson hated public speaking. And today that seems like unfathomable that you could have someone who would be president who hates speaking in public. But at the time, of course, being able to master the written word was far more important than his ability to go out and, you know, campaign and give speeches. So as we've seen technology change and media platforms change, do you all feel like that sort of the core traits it takes to be an effective communicator as a president have changed or really what makes someone successful today bears a lot of resemblance to what the, the sort of core traits that a George Washington or a Lincoln would have had. It's so hard to imagine George Washington in any context, but, <laughs> but just those early years. Um, you know, and his job was to be himself in a lot of ways. It was to um, present this strong figure, this unifying figure. And he um, he didn't do a lot of public speaking in in he didn't feel comfortable with it. He was um, insecure about his deficient education. He had to drop out of school when he was younger, and he was surrounded by men who had been educated at Harvard and um, College of William and Mary and, and other places, and who, were, who had diplomatic experience, who had been abroad. He had been to Barbados once when he was a teenager. Um, but it was, it, you know, Washington was, um, he had also sort of famously studied the rules of civility, which I think was um, just to work on his penmanship. And he has this like totally great signature as a result. But some things, you know, sunk in. And, um, you know, basic things like chew with your mouth closed and, you know, don't, don't flirt. Especially if you don't have any teeth. Yes. Um, and he was also, or you don't want to show what those teeth are made of. Um, right. So that's the other thing. He was really uncomfortable all the time because you can imagine that, um, you know, 18th century dentistry is not so great. Um, but he would do these things that meant so much to the country uh, when he was making his way, which he did not like. So it was a performance when he was making his way to the first inauguration, he um, it took a really long time because things took a long time when you go on horseback ride, you know, horseback. But also, he stopped constantly to greet the crowds. And he would do things like bow. And that was really important at the time. It seems like nothing. But, um, you know, we had just had a king. And, um, you know, you bow to the king. And the fact that he bowed to everyone was a really big deal. And when he rode through an area that had been significant during the revolution, and they did something special, they put flowers on a bridge, he wrote a thank you note. Um, and so things like that really mattered. He was interested in projecting this image and protecting this image of being a unifier to a degree that ended up, you know, it was stilting. So I, when you asked your question, I was thinking about the 
constant refrain about likability mm -hmm. that we hear now of our presidential candidates. And I think that would have been unimaginable up until I'll ask Julian when likability becomes a factor. But there was a certain deference. People wanted to look up to the president, I think, and feel that that person was special, not someone you'd go and have a beer with. And, and so when, when <laughs> well, did Teddy this... Roosevelt Teddy Roosevelt would be... Uh, romance with the person. Yeah. Uh, combined with the presence of a press that could sell the person mm -hmm. or at least convey the person. So it, it's a rough, uh, a rough start, but I assume that's probably mm -hmm. when you can start tracing that. Tracing that. Because I think that's a significant I, shift. How yeah. do we want the president to be like us or better than us or different from us? How do, how do we see that? I mean, I think I would, I'm just thinking about the question. There's two things that are a little different, maybe. Um, one is the we don't know exactly how the Trump White House works. So even the Twitter. No, but I mean, even the Twitter feed. There's different stories that some say he actually controls it in the morning and then someone takes over the Twitter feed. I've heard other stories. It's not so structured as that. Uh, but right now, assuming that's him, the unfiltered, unstructured, unedited uh, communication with the public is different than what we've seen. Uh, the comparisons always to FDR and the fireside chats, but if you listen to those... Those are very carefully tailored messages. They're not just like FDR goes out and just says what's on his mind and just, you know, rambles and insults people. But that is, that, that is the nature of the Twitter feed. And the Twitter feed is the public record of this president. So I take it very seriously. And I think he's doing something different with communication by doing this. Uh, in terms of the language he uses, in terms of the way the words are misspelled and and, and so I think that might be something different. I can't think of a president who has spoken to the public that way. Uh, and the, the other thing I'll just say is I do think all presidents lie. Uh, and there's lots of big lies. And the Gulf of Tonkin was a big lie uh, by LBJ that got us into a big, terrible war. But there is qualitatively something different about his willingness to use constant disinformation uh, in his public pronouncements and in his messaging that I think is taking us into a different realm. It's not checked. It's not as if he even feels the need to hide this sometimes. It's a comfort with line. It's truly a comfort with line as a legitimate form of discourse from a president. And now we have a media infrastructure that will convey those lies at a, a massive level, not small news, you know, city newspapers or some partisan papers, a, a network uh, and websites that have enormous reach. So I think on those two grounds, it is important to see some of the changes we're actually witnessing right now. I don't know how we roll those back, but I think he's really setting a new precedent uh, in, in those two parts of his rhetoric. Just to underscore yeah. one aspect of what you were saying. I remember after Obama was came into office, there was so much attention to this first black president, and there was a certain amount of noise about he's getting overexposed. The notion of what that represented in comparison to the Twitter feed, a constant. Yeah. It's a real shift in understanding the appropriate and desired level of interaction between a president and a populace. And, and you said, can we ever roll it back? One thing I wonder about is, even if the most magnificent human being and politician in the world were to 
become a president in the near future or even the medium future, could that person stop tweeting? Right. Because does the public now expect to have this constant intimacy with the president and all her or his thoughts? Yeah. And it's true. it's really hard to imagine that toothpaste going back in the No, tube. it's going to be very hard. And presidents, when they see other presidents have done something, there's a temptation to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was just sorry. I, I was just looking, related to this, I was just looking at the news coverage of the last months of the Nixon presidency. And, and many of you will remember that before the tapes come out, it's the, tra- you know, it's the transcripts of the tapes. And the expletives deleted, meaning the president cursed a lot, and so lots was marked out. But it's remarkable if you read, you know, the major newspapers of the time, just how shocking the expletives deleted was. There is serious discussion on the front pages with politicians being interviewed. This might be too much that we see the president using this kind of language and uh, insulting African Americans and Jews and cursing, but. And that is actually the first time you say, well, Republicans break in the spring of 1974. But now, because of this kind of flow of what's in his mind communication, it's impossible to even reach that shock level, let alone that other presidents will follow. It's really, it's a dramatic contrast to 1974. Now you have the, you don't need them deleted, and you have lots of them. And it doesn't really seem to uh, hit the public psyche. Would it be fair to say Trump is our most transparent president ever? At some level. Yeah, no, at some level that is true. But then, no, it's true. It's but true. then a part of that is that technology has changed. Yeah, Twitter was not as big when Obama yeah. was around. Um, right. He would not have used his personal account or the White House account for, for quite the same things. But but a part of this is the evolution of the presidency. I don't necessarily think that the next president... Um, will f- it certainly will feel an obli- you know will utilize a direct access to the public but i don't necessarily think that they'll feel the need to and and in fact the american public will probably appreciate seeing a little less engagement on that level um i think it's also significant to remember that there's something we're nostalgic about each president you know even in recent memory um every time obama you know releases a list of the books he's read we all think oh my god you remember when we had a president who read books? So you mean there'll be Trump nostalgia at some point? Yeah, a little bit, I think. What if we get a president who decides, um, you know, that to make this show sort of Washington-esque and, and hold back and, and allow us to go on with our lives without being constantly inundated? We might but miss some of that. <laughs> what percentage of the American people are currently supporting Trump? Presumably they would be nostalgic for Trump. When he leaves, for sure. Well, sort of tied to um, this communication style question is sort of this this leadership trait, I guess you could call it, of like bullying. It's kind of a word we hear a lot. Um, So I'd be curious how you all sort of think about whether it's through Twitter or not. Some of those um, tactics that Trump uses, and what do you feels familiar or new when you think about someone like Lyndon Johnson or, you know, you had mentioned even Andrew Johnson going out and using very vitriolic language about political opponents. So is there something really different here fundamentally? I mean, I mean, the most iconic image of Lyndon Johnson is the treatment, which is where he would, he was about six foot three, 
240 pounds, and he would literally hover over members of Congress or cabinet officials and stand in their space and famously wouldn't walk away until they agreed to give him what he wanted. And you can, you can look up. There's a famous one with Richard Russell. And, um, and, and he did this if you listen to the phone conversations. He could really berate people, bully them. I mean, he was a bully. And he could berate them until uh, they would do what he wanted or he would berate them when they didn't do what he wanted. And, and there's a lot of mythology about it. Uh, but he certainly was not kind. You know, he, he would... Uh, Joe Califano is one of his um, domestic advisors, tells the story in his memoirs that uh, they were going to, and, and uh, several members actually say this, he would take him into the pool and he would get naked, the president, and he'd jump in the pool and he said, come on, we're going to skinny dip and talk about our strategy. And they'd have to go and he could stand in the pool and a lot of them were smaller and they'd have to like wade. And it was a humiliating, it was a humiliating experience. And, and there's lots of stories like this. Once he called Califano and Califano's secretary said he's in the bathroom, so he can't come right now. And so Johnson said, I want a phone in his bathroom so I can reach him whenever you know, the hell I want to reach him. Um, but, but he didn't do it, interestingly, in public. Um, his speeches are very contained, Lyndon Johnson. He didn't lash out in the media that much. There's a couple occasions. Um, but part of what Trump does that is certainly different than LBJ, and I assume some, of, maybe not Andrew Johnson, but Andrew Johnson didn't have this kind of platform, is really lash out against specific individuals uh, who are often his opponents uh, in demeaning, berating ways. And uh, the difference isn't, was one a bully or not? It's what do you do on the public stage as president? What is your approach to leadership that way? And that's what we're seeing that, it, it's again, it's hard to replicate that. Any thoughts about Johnson comparisons or? Uh, earlier Johnson, Johnson yes. won. Andrew Johnson. I think that Andrew Johnson was just losing it, actually, by the end of his term. Seriously, I do. I think he was so distraught. He was so out of his depth. And he had this uncontrolled rage. And in a way, it, 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 he gets an asterisk of you can't compare to that circumstance and that person. I think Johnson, too, Lyndon's bullying was much more strategic. It was much more a part of his right. essential. Do you think that's a fair yes. contrast? Yeah. Julian, you wrote this great book called Fault Lines, and I thought it would be helpful and interesting to have you just talk a little bit about the thesis of it, which is that a lot of what we're seeing today was sort of born out of 1974, our Watergate experience. The heart of the book is that these divisions have been building for many decades, and, and President Trump is often exploiting them. He's diving into them in ways that we haven't seen before, but he's operating on a foundation that it's, it's the creation of post-1960s American politics, not just that the nation's divided. That's not, that's a complicated story, but a lot of our institutions do work to foster these kinds of political divisions. So we write in this book a lot about how the media changed from the network era to this cable, internet, wild west era. We talk about how the political parties changed into institutions that really um, have, especially the Republican Party, entrenched 
a partisan uh, approach to governance uh, in a systematic way that uh, involves money, involves media operations, involves the actual composition of the parties. And Trump is the culmination rather than the cause of the divisions. The, the pessimistic part of that story is even if you have variations uh, on him or a tamer president to follow, it's not going to go away. We wrote the book before Trump was president, before it was on the radar that he was going to be president. We were really thinking about the Obama years and what you were seeing in Washington with the Tea Party and how Fox Media was working then. So uh, we didn't predict President Trump, but it certainly followed the logic. And, and that's how history works. It's easy to tell political history often through presidents. It's very satisfying, simple. It's four year, eight years, they're out, one person. But really, we were interested in the context of how this came about and how it's working. And I think that's really important to remember as we debate what comes next. Could I ask Julian a question? Yeah. So I know historians aren't known for giving prescriptions. Yes. But do you have any thoughts about how this pattern might get reversed? Or how it can get reversed. I think, uh, for me, two things can happen. One is a really dramatic uh, election outcome, either this time or even in a few years, that shakes the Republican Party. In a very partisan moment, the only thing that's going to change the way a party operates is big loss to the party. That's the logic of partisanship. And so if you had a recreation of the 1964 election, uh, meaning a landslide defeat, a humiliation for the party, uh, that could have an effect of causing Republicans, not because of niceness, not because of, oh, that was not a good thing to do, but because it's not a winning strategy. All these predictions about demography in the Republican Party don't play, that, that could change it. And the second path is a 1970s style moment or a progressive era moment when reform becomes an actual issue, where people, where, which they rarely are, are interested in how do our institutions work. And, and we had a lot of changes in the 70s in, in presidential campaign finance, in sunshine laws. A lot of our uh, politics is more open now. Didn't turn out to be better, but it is different. There's a lot less secrecy. Uh, ethics rules changed. We need something like that to deal with redistricting, to deal with campaign finance, we need a moment of institutional introspection if it's actually going to change. Uh, those are the two paths I see to something big happening. Uh, otherwise, I think we're in this period for a while to come. Just to go back to something that you said at the very beginning, Alexis, about how uh, knowing about the intense partisanship of the beginning of the country lends a certain comfort as you look out today. Um, Maybe if each of you wants to just say, you know, to what extent your study of the presidency has made you feel sort of more scared about today's moment or sort of more comforted. I feel like it's a question I get having done the presidential podcast that I struggle to answer sometimes. But Such a hard question. I think um, on my worst days, uh, I tend to think I've spent so much time observing and studying how this country came together and I'm living through its um, downfall to a certain extent. Uh, a lot of the concerns that the founders had about corruption and decay, that seems to be happening. Um, on my best days, 
um, I believe in in Americans in America and that, you know, we can rally when necessary and, and even be interested in, you know, civil service reform. It's happened. So I don't know. I think there is there is the idea of renewal and that's that's me on a positive day. That's me on a good day. Uh, I'm very worried about where we are, but the kinds of questions I get about my historical uh, area of focus, people say, well, is it as bad as the Civil War? And I say, well, we haven't killed 750,000 people yet. And you know, con- people in Congress were armed. One person I wrote a biography of was from South Carolina, Senator, and he said anyone who doesn't have... Um, two knives or a gun has two knives and a gun you know it's just everybody who is bringing weapons into congress you know the story of how that unfolded and we haven't gotten to that yet so that can give me some basis for hope i see i i see i have two positions too so one is i've seen presidents just can make immense mistakes so it doesn't make me feel better i you know we have gotten into wars because of dumb things that presidents have done we have had social uh, passions inflamed because of the strategies that presidents were willing to take or issues they were uh, willing to not address i don't believe crises inevitably will be resolved I think the political system can easily gridlock and presidents can be stubborn people who don't do the right thing. So there's part of my study of presidents of Washington uh, that say, well, we might not be in a civil war yet, but A, we were in a civil war once. So let's remember that. And B, we've just had a lot of other uh, terribly consequential poor decisions by leaders. The good part is, uh, I, I keep talking about this 60s book, but, but when Johnson's presidency started, the mood about Washington was actually very glum, uh, not, not just because of Kennedy's assassination, but there was a sense in 63 and 64, Washington was totally broken. And if you read a lot of the newspapers and op-eds and books that were popular, it's all about the dysfunction of Congress and how the conservative Southerners and, and, and Republicans from the Midwest wouldn't do anything. They weren't going to address civil rights ever. They weren't going to deal with health care for the elderly. And the story of the Great Society is remarkable because citizen pressure through the civil rights movement, through union activists, it changes for a few years, just for a few years, but it changes the conventional wisdom. It changes what the reality was in Washington in pretty profound ways. Uh, And it turns someone as powerful as Lyndon Johnson to the side of this civil rights question. So I always remember that. I always remember that switch that takes place because of grassroots pressure. And I remember that can happen again. And, And I don't forget that. And I think that's a possibility today as well, whether it's through elections or whether it's through activism. Better angels of our nature. Thank you so much, Julian, Drew, Alexis. I really appreciate you being here and all of you being here. So thank you all so much. Thank you. Presidential listeners, thanks for tuning in. I hope you found the discussion from WBUR City Space interesting. And if you'd like to keep updated about what else we might have in store for presidential in 2020, you can find me on Twitter at Lily underscore Cunningham and on Instagram at Lillian Cunningham. 
we might just have some more special episodes and projects coming in the year ahead. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes.